Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark, uh, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Matt Singer. Now, Matt Singer is the author of Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. Uh, he is the editor and film critic of ScreenCrush.com, a member of the New York Film Critics Circle. Matt, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for talking to me. Uh, so, Matt, I, I wanted to talk to you about uh, the ways in which Siskel and Ebert kind of changed film criticism, how we talk about film criticism, uh, how they became the most famous film critics, arguably, of all time. Um, uh, and one very specific way uh, that all kind of came about was a structural thing that they brought to the game that nobody else could, television the introduction of film clips in a world before YouTube and a world before, you know, electronic press kits, really. Uh, they they were giving audiences something that they simply could not get anywhere else. That's right. That's absolutely. Yeah. The the end. You did it. You summed it all up. Now I don't have to say anything. You're... <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah. All right. Next question. No, I mean, they really, they absolutely were innovators in and different ways but in that sense yes it, the, the 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 sea change that they brought by doing those things which seems so obvious and simple now uh clips scenes from movies you know it is i think it is for a younger listener who's listening to us talk going yeah i can watch i can look at a trailer on my phone right now what's what what's the big deal you have to envision a world uh, you know, pre-YouTube, pre-Google, pre-Internet, pre-personal computers. Uh, it was it was a, literally another another universe, another era. And so, at that time, which when when they started, we're talking about the mid 1970s. You know, there is there are film critics on TV, but it's it's one person you know sitting at the news desk at the on the nightly news or whatever saying. This week, opening at the local theater is Jaws, and it's a good movie, and and thank you very much, and back to you, John, you know, that sort of thing. What they did was they made it a conversation, a debate, an argument very often, and they did add this element of clips. And again, you know, we're, we live in this era where if one of us wants to make a a, a visual review of something— We've got to use the clips that the studio is providing for us via an electronic press kit. That's what they're called. The studio send it out. You've got to use these clips. That barely existed at the time, if at all. And so they were in a process that's mind-boggling to consider now. They were taking the physical film prints, which is another aspect that is totally different now. The, the films were films. They were projected on celluloid. And they would have to take the the reels of 35-millimeter film, these 20-something-odd-pound cans of film, lug them from a, from a screening room or a movie theater and copy just the scenes that they wanted to use on the show. But that gave the show this huge selling point and advantage in that if you tuned in, you were going to get to see clips from the, the movies that you probably weren't going to see anywhere else. And they were making the show better in the process because it wasn't just them saying, well, this is a good movie and I love the cinematography. They were saying, this is a good movie and I love the cinematography. Look at how they use the camera in this scene. Look at the lighting. Look at the way that they're using the camera to tell the story here. You know what I mean? It brought that side of things that a print critic, the greatest print critic in the world, and there's many great 
print critics throughout history. They can't throw to a clip in that way. And um, that really was a huge deal and I think very influential. And even if the show is no longer on the air, we can all think of how that concept has filtered out into the world that we still live in today. And the studios kind of hated this, right? They they were not necessarily uh, fond of the idea of these two guys just going in and you know getting whatever they could until they until they realized maybe they could use it to their advantage. I would say the studios had a very complicated relationship with this show and these gentlemen. Yes, um, on the one hand, they loved when they liked a movie because. Uh, as the show grew, them liking a movie was an incredible selling point. Obviously, uh, two thumbs up became the ultimate, you know, the good housekeeping seal of approval for that era. I mean, that was shown on countless movie ads for the movies they liked. On the other hand, if they didn't like a movie, they had a very large megaphone that they were using to say that. And there's stories, and I get into one or two of them in the book, of studios banning Siskel and Ebert because they didn't like what they had said about this movie or that movie. Um, but ultimately, they kind of, the the potential for the good press outweighed, I suppose, the negative impact on any one film. Um, the fact that they, the studios were always hoping the next one's going to get two thumbs up, and so they would they would play ball with them. In terms of the whole aspect of you know clips, using clips, um, yeah, over time that went away, and even Siskel and Ebert started using the clips that they were shown or given by the studios in electronic press kits. But what they would sometimes do is, if the studios didn't give them clips they wanted, wouldn't let them show anything beyond one or two things, they would say... We wanted to show you a scene from this movie that did this or that. They wouldn't let us. You think what it means that the studio refuses to let us show a scene from this movie. You know what I mean? Like, they would, they could flip that to their advantage as well. So, you know, yes. Did the studio sometimes, were they sometimes driven crazy by these guys? Yes. Did they use the show to their own advantage other times? Absolutely. Uh, speaking of complicated relationships, we should talk about uh, Siskel and Ebert's actual relationship with each other. And I, you know, look, I learned a lot in this book about the two of them, uh, certainly before they they became writers and TV stars, uh, but also about their relationship with each other, which, you know, was always like, it was always a thing that people would say, well, do you guys really hate each other? And the answer to that is kind of complicated, at least at first. Uh, maybe it's not so complicated at first. Maybe they just actually hated each other at first. I think later it did get complicated. I do think in the beginning it was not a, it was not a positive, uh, relationship. You know, it wasn't like they, you know, it's the, the show that I grew up watching and that we mostly just call it now is Siskel and Ebert, you know, as if, as if, uh, these were the guys and they took it upon themselves to create this show celebrating them. But that was not the case. They were partnered together by the Chicago uh, public television station, WTTW. The, the people there wanted to put them together. They did not especially like that arrangement, especially in the beginning. They didn't like each other. They, uh, they frankly, they couldn't stand each other in the beginning. You know, they, Roger Ebert would write about how, you know, he started a couple of years before Gene in the late 60s as, a, as the film critic for the Sun-Times. 
And he would say that from, you know, like 69 when uh, Siskel got the job to 1975 when they started the show, they didn't talk to each other. They like never exchanged a word, even though they were going to the same press screenings and covering all the same press events for movies in Chicago. And it was just because they had this intense sort of, that's the guy who's trying to scoop me, who's trying to get my interview, who's trying, you know, like they just had this innate competition with one another. And so they just did not uh, get along at first. And then over time, as the show got better and became more popular and um, they they got better at doing the show and they started to make some money doing the show and become famous doing the show, I think they, you know, gradually did uh, come to respect one another, to like each other, to really even kind of love one another in, on some level. But that also didn't mean that they still couldn't piss each other off, which they continued to do. Like the, the, the stories of them angering each other, pranking one another, you know, driving each other crazy. Those would would continue. Um, you know, they always called themselves, you know, like or compared themselves to a sibling rivalry. And I honestly don't know at this point if I ever wrote that in the book because they they did it so much. I, I kind of was resistant to talking about it. Like I didn't want to just describe it that way. But I have two kids of my own. And um, when I see the way they relate to each other, other, it reminds me of Siskel and Ebert so much in the way that they can work together so well. They do love each other and they can be very close. And they are the most competitive people on the face of the earth. If one perceives that the other is getting some sort of perk, you got one more chocolate chip in your cookie than I did. That becomes the most, the, the biggest fight of their lives. And it's exactly how, when you talk to people who worked with Gene and Roger, that's exactly how they were about going on talk shows. Uh, and, you know, all of the sort of tit for tat that went with doing their show. Everything had to be equal. Everything had to be fair. They would fight over couch cushions. They would fight over this, you know, like, oh, because you know, on television, everyone has to look basically the same height. And Roger was shorter than Gene. So they gave Roger like a cushion to sit on. But that's not fair. Why does Roger get a cushion and Gene does not get a cushion? So they had to give Gene a cushion too. But then they they wouldn't be the same size. So Roger got a bigger cushion and Gene got a smaller cushion. And that way they could be equal. And I mean, that is something my kids would absolutely do. They would completely do something like that. 100%. 100%. As as the father of two children myself, I can say with certainty, the, the, when, the weirdest way this shows up is when one gets punished. Because one will be punished, and then the other will immediately start taunting the first <laughs> about being punished. And then they will be punished, and then they are equal again, but in a, in a much worse, much more negative sort right. of way. Right. Uh, so the, the, the relationship they have with each other is obviously incredibly important, but also the relationship they have with the audience. Um, and, and there are two, I, I mean that in two distinct sort of ways here. Uh, not only uh, the fact, and this was fascinating, I, I hadn't realized, I guess I kind of knew this at the time, but I hadn't really thought about it. Um, both the ways in which uh, when they would leave uh, one of their shows, the the people who own the show would try to keep it running to, you know, mix success. We can talk about that. Uh, but also the relationship they had to their audience and uh, what they owed the audience versus what they owed studios and filmmakers, which is roughly nothing. Like they, they did not feel in hawk to the studios 
and the audiences. Uh, let's talk first about let's talk first about how the shows uh, came to be built in each of their in each of the three distinct iterations and what happened to the first two after they left, um, and then and then a little bit more about the relationship with the audience. Sure. So yeah, I mean, these days I think when you say Siskel and Ebert, it's sort of you just envision this kind of like you know this one show, but actually it was three different shows with multiple titles. Um, and they basically, they remained the same and they would move from show to show each time. So, you know, they were brought in to start this show, which originally aired in the very beginning as opening soon at a theater near you, which just rolls right off the tongue. Um, that was the original incarnation of the show at, at PBS in Chicago. And then uh, within a year or two, they changed the name to sneak previews, mostly because it was snappier, quicker. It was easy to remember. It fit in the uh, TV guide section of the local newspaper, which was hugely important at the time. Otherwise, it would say, like, opening soon, dot, dot, dot. And, like, what does that even mean? Nobody really would would know. So then it became sneak previews. And then after a few more years in the early 80s was when they jumped to syndication. And the first show that they had in syndication was called At the Movies with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert. Never the other order. It was always Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, and that was a bone of contention, of course. Um, but yes, yeah, sneak previews continued on. The show didn't end. They left the show. Uh, and then they jumped ship uh, again a few years later after their contract with Tribune expired to Buena Vista Television, which was the syndication arm of Disney. And that was where first it was Siskel and Ebert and the movies – when they first started for, I believe, just one year. And then by that point, I think everyone realized we're watching the show as much for the guys as for the movies. And so they just dropped the movies and it became Siskel and Ebert until the end of the show, which was in uh, the very late 90s. But yeah, every time the show, every time they left, the show would, the theoretically, the show would continue. You know, they would bring in new hosts and, um, you know, sneak previews continued for a long time. I believe it was on the air longer without Gene and Roger than it was with them because it continued until, like, I believe the early 90s um, with Jeffrey Lyons and uh, Neil Gabler and, um, and then I think Michael Medved or maybe I'm getting the order of who replaced who they're mistaken. But, um, yeah, it was on for quite a while. Never had sort of the same impact. But it remained, and and when they left at the movies, they were replaced uh, at that show as well. The Tribune continued that show, not for very long, I think for uh, just a handful of years. Um, and um, yeah, it was. It, it, it's it's hard to believe that at one point, people, film critics talking on television, there were enough shows like that on TV that it was like a subgenre. Yeah. And all of these shows were being made in Chicago, not in New York and L.A. It was a very bizarre and fascinating time. Uh, it is. It's kind of wild to think about now. And and you do see. I look. I I I'm skipping ahead a little bit here. I I am wondering if. Uh, I wonder if. Uh, what do you make of the explosion of YouTube critics and uh, you know the the. Uh, no, none of them are as individually as popular as Siskel and Ebert. I think it's fair to say, but you know, a number of them have fairly sizable audiences. You know, Red Letter Media, or I don't know, the Critical Drinker. I like I I don't watch any of these really, so I don't. I, it's kind of an entirely foreign world to me. But I do get the sense that lots of people do, uh, and they are successful. But they are all successful for the same reason that Siskel and Ebert were successful, which was that people like to hear them specifically talk. 
Yeah, I do. Yes. I mean, I, I, I look at YouTube and, you know, I've seen the ones you mentioned I've watched. I can't say that I am a like a dedicated, obsessive viewer of any particular YouTube channel the way I was of Siskel and Ebert as a kid. But I think you, you can't help but see their influence in, in, uh, in YouTube and in podcasts, too. I think the main difference that I see, well, there's a, there's a few main differences. I mean, one difference is, and I, I think the most important from a, let's say, tonal standpoint, is that for the most part, YouTube and podcasts, and I listen to a, a movie podcasts and have for a very long time, like the people on those shows g generally, and you can correct me if you can think of a, a different example, these people like each other. They want to be there talking about movies. They would probably be talking about movies if there were no microphones and no podcasts or no YouTube. You know what I mean? They may not be, they, the podcasts or the, the cameras, that's a, that's kind of a means to an end in a sense. Like they, they would, they love movies and they love talking about movies with each other. It's my best friend. I've been doing this with for, we've been going to the movies since we were kids or, you know, this is my colleague who I love going to the movies with. And now we talk about it uh, on our podcast or our YouTube channel. There isn't really a, that I know of a podcast where it's like these two guys hate each other. And every week we're going to make them sit in a room and argue about these movies. You know what I mean? That I don't know of. That's a that's a sort of a huge a difference, uh, you know. By the end of the show, Siskel and Ebert, you know, they got along better. They did like each other to an extent. They had this relationship, but they could still tick each other off, and they could legitimately get hot about anything, but movies especially. And that was kind of part of the appeal was to see what would happen this week. And while I love a, a lot of uh, podcasts, I I rarely have that sense of like danger or drama to it it's about learning about movies it's hearing their insights it's it's almost like being a fly on the wall of a fun enjoyable conversation it's not that sort of spectator sport aspect for better or worse it's different and then the other big difference that immediately jumps to mind is that these youtube shows and podcasts can talk about anything they want for as long as they want you know there's podcasts i get weekly and i go this is a three-hour podcast about a 90-minute movie Okay, let's see. Let's see how this goes. Like, you know, at their longest, a Siskel and Ebert review was maybe 10 minutes, you know, and usually it was more like three or four minutes. So, you know, that, 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 you know, there's, there's some advantages to that and there's obvious disadvantages to it. You know, they never got to go that in depth about anything. But on the other hand, there is kind of an art as anyone who's ever had to write a capsule review of anything or, you know, will tell you. There is an art to summing up an argument in X amount of words, to boiling down what you have to the most distilled, uh, you know, almost like espresso-like, pure concentrated argument or opinion, um, and trying to express something in that amount of time and doing it intelligently and, and, and getting your point of view across. Uh, that is very difficult to do. Uh, maybe not harder, but certainly a very different kind of hard. Um, and so that is another difference about these, you know, kind of spiritual successors is that they have as much canvas as they want to paint with. And that's great. Um, but it, uh, it is, it is a different thing than Siskel and Ebert. Uh, I am with you on podcast bloat there. I can't tell you the number of times <laughs> I have clicked on a thing and been like, I'm sorry, you want to, you were taught. I, my commute is not this long for the whole week. What are you, what are you people doing? Uh, uh, the other the other thing that jumps out at me right now is it, it feels like we have a gap in the marketplace. We need a we need a you know movie battle 
people who hate each other watching movies uh, right. podcast or right. or YouTube show out there. So I got a lot of people who hate me. If you want to <laughs> drop me a line, um, I uh, the the uh, so the. Um, I guess I guess you know another thing uh, to look at with Siskel and Ebert, of course, are the the thumbs, and this is a thing I learned from from your book. I had no idea; I did not realize this that they were not always the thumbs up and thumbs down guys. That was a innovation at the midpoint of their career, more or less. They're not quite the midpoint, but you know, the first That's after the first third, essentially. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. They were when they were at the PBS show. Uh, sneak previews or opening soon at a theater near you. The, the, they they felt they needed a rating system, um, but at that time the rating system they settled on was yes or no. It was either two yeses or two noes, and that was how they did it for the entire duration of of that show. And when they left again, they didn't take the show and go to syndication. They left the show and started a new show in syndication. And so it was determined by lawyers, I suppose, that. It was not copyrightable to take the idea of two guys talking about movies like that. You couldn't copyright that. You couldn't control that. But it was felt that perhaps certain segments of the show may be uh, intellectual property of PBS, of WTTW. And one of the things that was determined to be potentially in that area was the yes and no. And so they needed to come up with a new system and... According to what I was told by the producer who said she was in the room at the time was they came up with thumbs up and thumbs down and that it was she remembered it being Roger who suggested it. And, yeah, that was the idea at uh, that second iteration of the show at Tribune. And then it carried over um, to Disney and they kept doing it. And, it yeah, that it became the trademark. But it definitely it was not. Yeah, it was not the original version. If you look on YouTube, you watch the PBS show. It is kind of weird at the end when they're like. Yeah, Halloween, two yeses, or we both say yes. It, it doesn't have quite the same ring, you know? The two thumbs up really, it became such a, a phrase that I think people still say it today. People probably who have no idea, even don't even know what Siskel and Ebert is, everyone says two thumbs up. Yeah, and they did actually literally copyright or trademark that, right? You you yes. could not use yes. that as a uh, yes. I didn't say thing. it. I did. Did I, I did I say two thumbs up? I didn't say it. No, I did. We didn't say that. No, um, yeah, you yeah not you can say thumbs up. You cannot say two thumbs up. That was what they uh, what what the the Ebert and Siskel. I guess now they're estates. I believe they still have, uh, you know, the last I looked at, like, the trademark, uh, U.S. trademark office or whatever it is, it's still filed there, um, at least the last time I looked. So, yes, they, they held the rights to two thumbs up. You, you, in, the, in the movie world, they, they, they owned that. You could, I guess, say thumb, thumb up or thumb down, but two of them, that was where you got into trouble. Yeah. Uh, that's how we get around it on Across the Movie Alab, another podcast that I do, is that we each we each just give one thumbs up or one thumbs down. That's okay. That's, that's we we no there's never all of them. Walking that walking a line there, but just it's, it's very okay. close. Very, it's very close, but okay. <laughs> very tight. Uh but this I mean look, this gets to the broader debate about Siskel and Ebert and their place in the critical firmament, which is, you know, are are were Siskel and Ebert good for the movies or bad for the movies? Um, and I, you know, look, I, I think it's an interesting, uh, I think it's an interesting argument. But uh, there were folks who 
really, really thought that they were like the downfall of not just not just criticism, but like really the state of movie going and talking about movies in general. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it is there's a there's a chapter in the book that's about that and some of the more notable times where they they found themselves um, attacked for, yes, the dumbing down of of film criticism. And I feel like history has sort of, you know, borne out that that just wasn't the case. You know what I mean? Like the amount of people who were inspired by the show, who went into film criticism, who went into filmmaking, um, who whose careers were made by the show. Uh, there's a lot of them out there. Um, and, you know, the, the two thumbs up thing, while it certainly became a, a, a marketing tool, um, you know, the show itself was more than than thumbs. You know, the thumbs were the last minute of the show. The rest of the show was talking about the movies. And, um, you know, I interviewed A.O. Scott for the book, who worked on one of the later versions of At the Movies after Gene had passed away and Roger could no longer speak. And he wrote, a, he's written a whole book about criticism, not just film criticism, but like that, you know, arts criticism in general. And he, what he said was, you look at any period in the history of art, and there are critics who are like, what is happening to the state of criticism? This is the the death of criticism. This isn't real criticism. You know, he's, you know, like at the time of Coleridge, these things were being said about the art criticism of that time before even movies were invented. And so he sort of sees those arguments as just yet another variation of that. Um, these things as all things do, they evolve, they change. And, you know, he's like, you know, to what he would say was, he really thinks that kind of the root of all film criticism is, you know, when you go see a movie, what's the first thing you do when you walk out of the movie? Whoever you went with, you stand out in the lobby and you just talk about what you saw. And, oh, I like this. You like that? That was terrible. Why would you like that? You know, and he felt like all film criticism originates from that moment and that impulse. And what Siskel and Ebert did was they brought that impulse into the actual art and work of criticism. And they made that part of it. They turned it from a monologue to a dialogue. They um, encouraged people to have differing opinions. Um, I suppose if you listening to that think that's a bad thing, I, 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 so be it. But uh, I, I don't, I really don't see it that way personally. Yeah. Well, I mean, this this gets into, uh, you know, we, we could we could tie this into the debate over Rotten Tomatoes. Right. People sure. say, oh, Rotten Tomatoes is a disaster. You know, it's this one score that is, uh, you know, it's not even representative of a 99 percent fresh movie could just be, you know, a 99 percent people giving it two and a half out of four stars. Who can say? And I I totally agree and sympathize with that. But the real you know, value added of Rotten Tomatoes, if you care, if you actually care about criticism, is that it is a very nice place to have all of the reviews collected in one source. You can click on them. You can read them. You don't have to, but you can. They're there if you're actually interested in that sort of thing. And that's that's the that's the great thing about the old uh, Siskel and Ebert episodes is that you go back and you listen to them talk. And that is uh, there's, you know, Say what you will about thumbs up and thumbs down. The the actual documents of them speaking to each other are, uh, I think, of great use. Oh, and still are. Like it's an it's a it's a fun show to watch now. 
it's an insightful show to watch now. It's an educational show to watch now. Uh, you know, like doing the research for this book, part of it was watching hundreds of these episodes. And I mean, maybe this doesn't speak highly of me as a person and how I choose to spend my time, but I had, I loved that part of it. I loved rewatching and watching all of these episodes. And part of it was, yeah, every, every episode, it's like, well, what are they going to talk about this week? What random movie have I never heard of um, that I've never seen even in some cases? Are they going to say is fabulous? And then I can track it down and watch it. And that's how in the book, in my book, there's an appendix of buried treasures. And that literally is how that came about in the book is I'm watching these episodes and going, I've never heard of this movie, much less seen it. And then I would go seek it out and go, this is a great movie. And, you know, they certainly did have the power to elevate a lot of movies at that time. But then there were things that they that just for whatever reason fell through the cracks. Uh, And so, yeah, revisiting the show, you can discover those things or you can learn about you know, what, it's a great sort of time capsule of, of 75 to 99 of what was going on in the movie world and the pop culture world to some extent during that period. And if you watch a lot of episodes, you can really watch these things evolve. You get to watch how they relate, like the introduction of VHS and how they relate to that. And at first they're very wary, uh, a familiar argument to people who live in this world and people, you know, having debates about streaming versus theaters. Um, and then they ultimately came around to think that uh, VHS was an incredible boon to the, the world of movies, and they loved it. And then they then Laserdisc and later DVD. Um, and you get to watch these these sort of things evolve week by week, month by month, year by year. Um, you know, I think I write this in the book that, you know, people say journalism is the first draft of history. Siskel and Ebert is like the first draft of film history for this time period. And you can get a great education on what was going on in the movie world during this time period by watching a lot of these episodes. And uh, like I said, I, I would, if you're at all interested, it's a, it's a, it's the it's the ultimate YouTube rabbit hole to go down just watching episodes, you know, to see what they were talking about. And one will just lead to another. It's like it's very easy to fall. It really is a rabbit hole. You watch one and then that right rail has five other episodes and you're like, well, let me just watch one more. Oh, they reviewed, uh, you know, yeah, Godzilla. Let me see what they had to say about that, because there were characters named after Gene and Roger in that movie. What did they have to say about that one? And boom, boom, boom. Suddenly you've spent three hours watching YouTube clips of Siskel and Ebert. Oh, the YouTube algorithm will get you every time. Uh, the uh, the it, you mentioned you mentioned uh, VHS, and I, I'm curious. I, I can't remember if you mentioned this in the book. I don't think you did. But did they review any of the straight to VHS stuff, or was it? Or, or are we just talking about their their discussion of classics coming back to VHS? They predominantly reviewed theatrical releases. That was their bread and butter. But they would occasionally, you know, go outside of that if there was something they felt was notable. They often reviewed, you know, the big, at the time it was like HBO movies, you know, mm-hmm. when they would have a huge movie that the Barbarians at the Gate or the Late Shifts of the World, they would review those. They also did these episodes in the mid 80s, which are very interesting, called like At the Video Store, where they would talk about whatever the top 10 rentals were on like 
I don't know if it was Entertainment Weekly or whoever's publishing whatever publication is listing the be- the biggest VHS tapes and they would just talk about whatever they were if they were movies they talked about like the Jane Fonda workout video that way they talked about music video compilations they gave two thumbs down to Michael Jackson's Thriller as a result of doing this sort of thing so yes while they did mostly review the big theatrical releases or even the art house and indie and important what they felt were artistically important releases yeah, they would go they would go outside of those sorts of things to talk about if they were on yeah, notable on VHS or then later laserdisc. It just depended on what they thought was worth talking about. Every week they would look at what's going on and they would have, you know, pre-production meetings where they would toss around, here's the four movies that are most important this week. Well, what about this? This just came out on a Criterion laserdisc. This seems important. All right, well, let's take off the movie that doesn't seem all that interesting and we don't have anything to say about it. Let's instead uh, drum up some business, hopefully, for Citizen Kane being put on Laserdisc for the first time or whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, You mentioned the archives, watching the archives, and there are episodes that are available on YouTube. There are clips that are available on YouTube. Is there a... Is there a place where all of the episodes have been collected? Or is there a you know is there a library or some somewhere that you would go to and uh, watch watch the the old archives or or have some of these been lost? I feel like you know TV is by its nature ephemeral. I would not be shocked if there are just episodes of Siskel and Ebert that are gone forever, particularly from those early PBS years. Yeah, there's definitely a few that are are lost. I mean, maybe somebody out there in some basement somewhere has a dusty tape of some of these early episodes. Um, but there, there are some very dedicated fans who have... Uh, and I, my hat is off to them, to all of those wonderful people who would obsessively tape the show and then, yeah, have uploaded these... Um, these archives. There's also a very um, thorough fan website, siskelebert.org, where you can watch a lot of episodes of the show, some of which, at least at the time I was doing this, were not on YouTube. Maybe some of them are now. I I don't know. But um, there isn't, to your question, there is not one central official uh, place. I wish there was. I know Chaz Ebert, Roger's widow, has said has talked about doing that, and I I hope she does. Uh, I would be the number one user of such a site if it did exist. But at this point, there isn't like a, a official home for the show in that sense. No. Yeah. Uh, all right. So you you went back. You watched a ton of episodes, and I'm going to put you on the spot here slightly. Uh, you, there's the appendix at the end of the book that has uh, it has a lot of, you know, two thumbs up hidden gems, like you said, you discussed. Uh, and again, the book is really if you are interested in Siskel and Ebert, you've got to read this. It, there's you have a ton of interviews with folks who worked with them over the years and, you know, folks who worked with them toward the end when they were uh, trying to keep the show going. Um, uh, and it's really it's really interesting. But I am going to I'm going to put you on the spot here. Uh, are are there any two thumbs up or two thumbs down reviews from Siskel and Ebert that you strongly disagree with? Where you you were watching it, you're like, I cannot believe they gave, I don't know, whatever, two thumbs up, or oh, but this is so good, how could they both hate it and right. give it two thumbs down? Yes, oh, for sure, it happens. Nobody's perfect, right? Um, and yes, while I was watching the show, that was another super enjoyable part of it. Is yes, there were discoveries, and then there were also times where you're like coming to a movie that everyone today, the consensus is this is a great film of this period and they would give it 
a two thumbs down. So I, and I would keep tallies of these sorts of things in my obsessive deranged notes that I was taking. So yeah, I have a whole list of movies they got they got wrong, uh, so to speak, quote unquote. I'm not you know attacking them. I'm just that's how I would term I would I would term it in my notes. But like um, uh, Beetlejuice is a movie that I really like. They gave two thumbs down to Beetlejuice. Um, they gave two thumbs down to Gremlins 2, The New Batch, one of my favorite comedies of that period. Um, they gave two thumbs down to Reservoir Dogs. That's oh, a surprising one. Yeah. That's an unexpected one. But, uh, you know, and then there, there's, there's examples of them certainly giving thumbs up. I mean, the one that I remember from being a child and watching the show was they gave two thumbs up to Speed 2, Cruise mm. Control. Sure. Where I, and I remember going... You know, having seen Speed and loving the original Speed, and then they give it th- two thumbs up. You're like, oh man, they pulled it off, great! And then you, I went to see it, and I was like, what, what? They two, two thumbs up, two. They this is the movie they liked, and uh, I've never understood uh, that one. Um, but yeah, that that's one. And then there's examples of you know where one or the other you know might like a movie, and the other a classic. You know, like Ebert gave thumbs down to Die Hard. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, Ebert gave thumbs down to Blue Velvet. He he didn't. He he was never a huge David Lynch fan. He gave a thumbs down to a lot of of his movies. Siskel gave thumbs down to Predator, you know, or a Slacker, or you know, Sleepless in Seattle. All these different movies. Um, you know, they they had their own uh, personal taste, as all film critics do. Um, and they they certainly when you watched or when I watched, I should say, hundreds of these in context together, you would you would discover things. You would see, oh, they, Gene doesn't really like science fiction movies, especially dark science fiction movies. He's always giving thumbs down to dystopian sci-fi, and Ebert loves those movies. That sort of thing. That would, that mm-hmm. would absolutely come up a lot. Yeah. Uh, all right. I always like to close these interviews by asking if there's anything I should have asked. If you think there's anything folks should know about Siskel and Ebert, about the shows, about the men, uh, about their legacy, about your book. What, uh, what, what should, what should people know? I don't know. We, I mean, we, we, we've, we've kind of covered it. Yeah. I'm looking, I'm looking now. Cause you had me, I had my, I, I opened my notes here to uh, one of these ridiculous documents. This one is 144,000 words of notes about Siskel and Ebert. Um, and we talked about the ones they got wrong. Maybe, how about I just list some of the ones they got right that they yes. liked that became classics because I don't want people to think that I, you know, that they they, they didn't have, they had suspect taste. Uh, so here's just a few of the ones that got two thumbs up that they did love. Uh, Robocop. Uh, uh, Wall Street, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, The Naked Gun, one of my favorites, uh, The Little Mermaid, uh, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, The Grifters, Goodfellas, Rudy, uh, Menace to Society, Groundhog Day, uh, Pulp Fiction, Ed Wood, The Shawshank Redemption, Train Spotting. That was a big one that I remember seeing specifically because they covered it on the show. Uh, L.A. Confidential, Titanic, There's Something About Mary. Uh, so, you know, like, they, they were, they were, they were pretty good at their jobs, I would say. I think they did, they did a pretty good job. And, um, it was also fun, like, watching the show and seeing how sometimes, you know, they would recognize filmmakers or actors, like, 
very, very early and say, this person is going to be a huge star or this person is, is going to be a, a major director and how often they were right about that sort of thing. That's another kind of fun thing to do as you're watching these episodes. See how often they were right. It's not just about, ah, how could you, how could they give Beetlejuice two thumbs down? Like a lot of times um, they were out there uh, saying, Clueless is two thumbs up, uh, you know, uh, when that movie first comes out or Clerks or, you know, Hoop Dreams or whatever it might be. Uh, they, they, they were pretty good at, at their jobs, I would say. Yeah. Uh, all right, Matt, thank you very much uh, for being on the show. So, uh, again, the name of the book is Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. Uh, my my guest today is Matt Singer. You can uh, pre-order the book now, pick it up. It'll be in your mailbox, uh, you know, when it comes out on Tuesday. That'll be great. Uh, Matt, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Uh, again, my name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark, and I will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. We'll see you guys then. Mm-hmm.